Live Above the Noise, the Choiceful Family Project. Welcome to Live Above the Noise, the Choiceful Family Project. I'm your host, Wayne Yurcha, and this podcast is a step-by-step action plan to help parents protect and prepare their children for the future. Well, thank you for joining us. This is episode number 13, and I'm here with my podcast partner, developmental and educational psychologist and kids media expert, Dr. Rob Ryer. And if this is the first episode you're listening to, we do want to tell you that each episode builds upon the preceding ones. So to get the most out of the episodes, we suggest that you listen to them in order. Now also, as a guide for you, episode 1 through 8 provide important foundational information. And starting with episode 9, we begin to introduce specific tools and strategies designed to help you protect and prepare your children and family for the future. Now in the last episode, episode 12, we were joined by mom of four, Adrian Principe who is the founder of Turning Life On and the co-founder of The Conquered Promise. And in that episode, we started to explore a valuable framework that parents can use to help guide and nurture their children's healthy development. It's called the Inner IQ, which stands for Inner Integral Qualities. And we talked about three dimensions of the Inner IQ, and those were identity, values, and virtues. Today, we're fortunate to have Adrian with us again as we start exploring three more important dimensions of the inner IQ, self-management, meaning, and mastery. So let's get started. Rob, could you give our listeners a bit of an overview first? What we're doing is building nine qualities that are critical for well-being and mental health, which, by the way, some information shocked me the other day. I I heard that there has been a 30% increase in suicide in the last 15 years in this country. And it's fascinating to be looking at the hype that we bought into with regard to technology and the happiness hype that it'll make you happier, when in fact, all the data is showing the reverse as the technology increases. That's a massive increase in suicide. So we have to understand more about like the impact technology is really having on people. And uh, we'll, we can talk about that, uh, you know, as part of any one of these podcasts in the future. But this is a massive change. And also one out of four people now are having mental health issues in this country. That's a big statistic, too. One out of four. Those are big changes, which leads us to then the second category of the NRIQ, the integral quality of competence. And basically, that has three components, uh, self-management, meaning, and mastery. So the self-management dimension of that has to do with discovering and utilizing your pathways to control and power. And you can't get there. You can't discover them and use your pathways to power unless you understand how to manage your cognition, your thinking process. So this is where I believe we're seeing a major breakdown in society, which is in the area of cognitive control, meaning I must control my own thinking process. How do I do that? Well, the only way I can learn to control that is by going inside and spending time understanding it, not spending all my time outside on all the devices that are designed to addict me and pull me outside myself. If I give that up and I make that trade-off 
and I start spending all my hours on external communication and reduce my internal communication, what's really happened is I am destroying my ability to understand myself by developing my cognitive control. So self-management is thinking about your thinking, reflecting on your thinking, altering your thinking, using creative strategies, but being in charge of the thought process, which is the cognitive control process. And when you think about that, resilience, for example, a child's resilience is another area that we're looking at that is declining based on the fact that certain external factors have dominated their processing. And we know about neuroplasticity, so we know the brain is rewiring that process of self-management. So resilience, commitment, focusing, filtering information, and really being able to see how we control the life around us based on the thought process inside us. That's the self-management dimension. I think the self-management piece is so important, and we talk about that a lot with technology and the way that kids are using technology. And Rob, you mentioned resilience. And we're definitely seeing a decline in resilience. And I think it has a lot to do with over-reliance on technology versus relying on ourselves and our own inner strengths and qualities. So let me give you an example. If, you know, when I was growing up and I had to wait at the bus stop for the bus to come, I either had to be okay standing there by myself and not talking, or I had to strike up a conversation with kids at the bus stop that maybe weren't my friends, or maybe I didn't know them well, but that was kind of what you were forced to do. Today, what we're seeing, I think anybody across the country would say this, when you drive around, kids are standing at the bus stop looking at their phones. I think the same thing happens after school. Instead of having that resilience Um, to stand there and to deal with maybe some uncomfortable feelings or to have to strike up a conversation that doesn't feel easy. I mean, that's how we build resilience. And when we're relying on these external devices instead of our own skills, I think that's definitely a problem. Huge problem. In fact, uh, Adrian, I was in the mall the other day and I decided to sit for a minute on a bench there and watch people walk by and sort of calculate like what was going on with people. And by the time I got done, it was about seven out of every maybe 10 people that passed, might even have been eight, either had a phone in their hand or were looking at a phone while they were walking around the mall. Exactly what you're talking about is like, what what is the trade-off that's being made when you are not using your communication skills all the possible ways you can? So it's an incredible trade-off that people are making. They don't understand they're making it. But students in my class at the university level also told me that they're great on their phone when they communicate, but they cannot be in person with people the same way they're ineffective in their terms of personal communication. Well, we talked about this a little bit in the last episode. You know, we were talking about identity, values, and virtues, and we talked about how everybody brings something unique to society. And that's what makes our world interesting. I recently wrote a blog about this titled The Art of Talking to Strangers and how we don't do that anymore. Because when you're at the mall or at a grocery store, everybody's on their phones. Nobody is communicating with each other anymore. Nobody's talking to strangers. And I think that's what kind of builds, can build our character as well. We can learn 
not only from entertainment, but we can also learn from the people that are in the world. And if we stop talking to each other, stop talking to strangers, we're missing out on so much that can build our character. You could talk to somebody and say, you know what, that person's really interesting and they have a really great take on life or they have a really interesting passion. And, you know, I've learned something from them. I can take that with me as part of my identity um, or I can take one of their values as part of my values. And when we're relying so much or we're using devices so much and we're not communicating with each other, it's kind of sad. We're missing out on so much. Well, and you never know what you're going to get when you talk to a person. I always find it fascinating. You know, sometimes in, in our local paper here, we have a section and it it's kind of a tribute to a person's life. And uh, sometimes you read this and you say, oh my gosh, here's this person that I might have seen waiting at a bus stop or as I drove by or in a, in a cafe someplace. Just this past week, I believe it was, it was the 75th anniversary of D-Day. And there was an article about um, this woman that had worked for the British, had been undercover in Europe, had escaped uh, a number of times from, from the Nazis, from Gestapo. She was like four foot 10. She was one of the biggest spies. And so she, she was unbelievably brave. And she managed to get through the war. She ended up moving to Victoria and has spent, you know, a good part of her life here. Victoria is where I live. And you never would have known that. When you don't talk to people, when you live in the bubble of your tech, you're not getting any of that stuff. And you're right. I think things are being lost. Insights are being lost. Well, you know, another thing, Wayne, is what I don't think anybody's talking about states of the brain, uh, states, uh, how the states shift according to the activities that you engage in. So, for example, if you're in a critical thinking state or you're a visually dominant state on your cell phone, that alters the brainwave patterns and the state that you're in. Now, if you're not doing that and you're engaging in conversation with somebody, you're going to have a brainwave shift into a different state. And it's like if you lose the wiring of those kinds of shifts where you have to be more spontaneous, more intuitive, more interactive, those kinds of things over time, then you, you don't know how to do that. You know, you're starting to lose a skill without even understanding the states of your brain that are being shifted based on the activities you're engaging in. I know you guys in an earlier episode talked about persuasive design. Technology is interfering with our self-management because of the way that it's designed. And I think people don't really understand that. So we're, there's this big um, struggle at play here where we're trying to have the self-management or trying to build resilience or trying to get off our phones and communicate with people. But these phones and these devices are designed to keep us using them. So there's this real struggle that's happening um, that I don't think that we've really faced in the past. Uh, the other thing that's happened along with that is we bought into the definition of happiness, a new definition, which is pleasurable experiences. That's only one of several ways to define it. The other definition is well-being, and that's very different than pleasure, and well-being takes work. And so when you, when you get into creating my well-being using my self-management skills, that's how I become truly happy over the long term and not the short dopamine pleasure hit that I get that people say it makes me happy on a short-term basis. So we've lost the definition of what it takes to become truly happy 
based on developing well-being over time. Kind of like getting a sugar rush, isn't it? You get your sugar rush and it gets you right up there after you have a, I don't know, a cupcake or something like that, and then you crash. Well, it's the same thing. You're on your tech, you, you get notifications and you're up there and then you crash, as opposed to maybe with food, having you know something that's good for you, that sustains you and allows you to do other things. You need that sugar rush. It's the same. If you're into the dopamine rush all the time, I think you've got a, an issue. I think you mentioned something in our last episode, Adrian, that I found was interesting, and that was that tech is designed to keep us in that balance between, what did you say, anxiety and... Yes, yeah. So gaming, that's gaming is designed to keep us in, they call it either constant flow or the zone, mm. which is basically that perfect place between anxiety and boredom. So it's not easy enough that we don't want to play because we're bored, but it's not hard enough that it causes us any forms of anxiety. So we don't want to use it. So it keeps us in that perfect place. And they have figured out in games how to do that, how to keep players in the zone. And I'm sure if we dug into this, you would find that social media platforms are doing the same thing when they're designing their algorithms. Yeah, admittedly doing it and then saying, uh-oh, um, you know, we did this and now we're not sure what we did, but it's too late now. Well, and that's why on Facebook, you have friends and likes. They were very specific in the way that they designed this technology to keep people saying, okay, how many friends do I have now? Or how many likes do I have? I found a button, um, a little pin that I have in my car and it says, where are all my Facebook friends when I need yeah. them? <laughs> right? Because <laughs> You can have 500 weeks. We talk to teenagers who have a thousand friends or a thousand followers, right? And where are all those people when they really need them? Rob, you just talked about we're having a mental health crisis in this country. Why do people feel so, so all alone if they have a thousand friends? Because we're missing out on what it really means to be a friend and what really, what you just said, what is the definition of happiness? Is it those pleasurable experiences, the likes that we're getting, the friend requests? seeing how many friends that we have, or is it the work that we put into our well-being? Um, my boys over the summer, they don't have phones and they um, had gone on a bike ride. And my younger son, who's eight, he was eight at the time, he fell and messed up his handlebars, skinned his knee. Luckily, his older brother was with him, who was 10 at the time. So they were on the side of the road. A woman came out of her house, asked them if they needed to use her phone. She, they said no. She went back in. She came out with some ice. And my older son picked my younger son up, you know, pushed the older son, pushed both bikes home. The younger son kind of hobbled behind him and they made it home. But when they got home, I said to them, you know what, you guys, you were resilient. You were brave. You figured this out on your own. Had you had a phone, you would have just picked it up. And of course, being a caring mother, I would have run over there to save yeah. the day. And then they would have, they would not have developed that resilience and that um, all those skills that they need. And I, I think that when we give kids the opportunity to do those things, they develop a sense of pride. And I think that pride helps with their well-being as, as well. It's kind of the sense of, oh, look, I can do it. I can stand at the bus stop. Um, without relying on my phone, or I'm brave enough to go talk to that person that I don't really know, or I forgot my gym shorts at home. I'm not going to call my mom. I'm going to figure it out. 
I mean, that is the definition of well-being, right? That's right. And that's a great, great, great example. Great example. Adrian, can you speak to the anxiety, though, that parents often talk about if their child doesn't have the phone with them or doesn't have, you know, a smartphone? What do you say about that? Because, I mean, isn't that an issue for parents? You must run into a lot of people that you know that don't want their child to ever be without their phone because they're afraid. Absolutely. There's a few times that this question comes up. Okay. So you have parents who are worried about ticks and Lyme disease and mosquito bites in West Nile. And of course, their kids being outside by themselves and the risk of being kidnapped. So parents are keeping their kids inside. So that's one piece of it. The other piece is similar to what we just talked about is sending your child out into the world with no way to communicate with you as a parent. So you're kind of cutting that cord. Um, What I would say to parents is when they're young is when you want to start developing the skill or start practicing this. So for instance, you wouldn't just one day when your kid turns 13, tell them, okay, now you can go out and cross the street. No, when they're two, you start by carrying them across the street. Then as they get a little older, you hold their hand. Then maybe you don't hold their hand but you walk across the street with them. And then finally, you let them cross ahead of you. So you're building up that skill to be able to cross the street alone. It's the same thing when they go out into the world without a communication link back home is you want to maybe do it when they're little, when they're not going very far. So maybe, you know, when they're younger and they're playing in the yard, and then as they get a little bit older, you let them bike to a friend's house and you have them call when they get there. And then as they get slightly older, you let them bike or walk a little bit further. And then maybe, you know, my kids are 12 and 11 now. I let them, we live in a very safe town. So, but they, you know, walk around in town and I say, okay, um, it's 1130. You have to get your lunch and I'll be back here to pick you up at two at this one restaurant. And that's where I'm going to meet you. And you, you have to develop those skills, which are so important for their development, which I think is, is more important than them being able to call you anytime that they have a problem. And I think if parents can get over that and they can realize, okay, these are the skills that my kid needs to be successful in the future, then maybe hopefully they'll have a little easier time letting them go. And, and I think also in terms of parental anxiety, it's hard. It's when I let my kids bike down the street, you know, when the boys fell and the next day they want to go for a bike ride again, that's hard as a parent to let them do that, but eventually they're going to go. So either you can deal with that anxiety as a parent when they're biking down the street or walking around in your town, or you can deal with that anxiety when they get in the car for the first time at 16 years old and drive away or when they go off to college. For me, I'd rather kind of build up to that moment than like, oh, getting in a car and driving away. And please don't call me because we know that kids who talk on the phone and drive are more likely to get in an accident. So then you definitely don't want them on their phone. Well, that's good advice. I mean, that takes courage on the part of the parent too, doesn't it? I mean, the child is being asked to enter sort of a new world. And and as they grow up, they're asked to do that over and over. I mean, and that's part of what's exciting about being young and learning new things. But for the parent, I mean, that requires a certain amount of courage, too, to say, I have to be strong enough to allow them to make mistakes. That's really 
a big deal these days, allowing children to make mistakes and then learn from those mistakes and fail. I mean, failing is is something you have to do in life. You know, what's interesting about that, Wayne, is this never was an issue until technology made it an issue. You know, because if you think back, uh, this is what you did when you were younger, especially at our ages, there was nothing to bail you out. So you weren't making the trade-offs that all of a sudden since the 90s, the mid-90s and screens and then mobile phones, all of that just is new, you know, and parents don't really understand these trade-offs that have occurred based on the technological innovations and how critical they are to reducing success if you're not aware of them. These are huge trade-offs. Well, and I think, Rob, in general, the world is no less safe than it was then. Right. Right? And I think that, I don't know, maybe it's the 24-hour news cycle that we have where parents think there are many more dangers. I mean, of course, with the school shooting situation, you know, that is a huge fear of parents, and, and rightly so. I mean, that is definitely a new phenomenon. But all of the security people that we have spoken with have told us that when there is an emergency situation like a school shooting, the last thing that you want your child doing is calling or texting you. And that having a phone is perhaps the, one of the more dangerous things that they can have. It's actually not making them safer. It's putting them more at risk because maybe they're trying to call you or text you and they're not paying attention to what's going on around them when they really need to be focused on dealing with the situation. Yeah. And I think the other thing is that parents don't realize that you hear about this a lot, but you really don't get that the name of the game in media is attention. And if it's a three second to five second attention span, how are you going to get it? And so what they don't get is negative news grabs attention. Positive news does not. So the world is going to keep feeding you whatever it can feed you to get your attention. And if that becomes distractive negative information, then your brain is going to learn that as the way the world works and develop a worldview about the world based on that negative input. That's something that you just have to be aware of and be able to figure out how to filter that out. Otherwise, you're stuck with it. Well, you know, Einstein had a great quote that pertains to that. He said, and I hope I get this right, um, the most important decision we make is whether we believe we live in a friendly or hostile universe. So from what you're saying there, if what our children are taking in is there to get their attention and it creates a fear-based worldview in them, that will absolutely affect everything they do or even attempt to do in life. So developing self-management skills that will allow them to handle this situation, to handle this noise, is just so important for their future well-being. Absolutely. I think the point that I'm trying to make is that you can take baby steps with your kids because they're eventually going to leave the nest. So I think it's better off for children to prepare for the future and for parents to prepare for their children to launch is taking baby steps and giving them a little bit of rope and letting them fail when they're really young and it doesn't really matter uh, and letting them learn those harder lessons at a younger age. For instance, my daughter recently, one of her friends took her phone and sent out of just a silly video that they had created 
to their class group text. And it wasn't really a big deal, but we made it a big deal and said, you know, you have to remember that anybody on the text could take that video and forward it on to maybe a bunch of boys, or maybe a parent could see that or a dad or a brother. You just never know. Once you put it out there, it's out there. And she was really upset about it. And my husband felt bad and said, oh, maybe we should reassure her that it's okay. And I said, it's good for her to feel that discomfort now when it really doesn't matter that much. Then for her, I mean, hopefully she will never do this, but for her to send out an inappropriate picture that ends up in the principal's, you know, in the principal's email because she didn't learn this lesson now. Right. And that, of course, takes us to just how incredibly important self-management is and why it's one of the dimensions of the inner IQ. And we had planned to talk about two more dimensions of the inner IQ today, and those were meaning and mastery. But I think uh, we would do better to cover those in the next episode when we have a little more time. So, Rob, a final thought for today. What do you want parents to take away from this episode? The big takeaway for today is that self-management unfolds a little step at a time, and it's a developmental issue that is related to the brain unfolding a little bit at a time, all the way up into maturity. So developmentally, what you want to do is understand as much as you can about how to help your child create self-management skills a step at a time through their developmental growth. And we'll come back to this often and talk about how the mind develops, how it develops at a higher level, and what you need to do developmentally at different ages and stages to incorporate that self-management at the right stage in the best possible way. Well, thank you, Rob. And uh, Adrian, thanks so much for joining us. And I know you're going to be back with us again next episode as we continue this exploration of the inner IQ. And to all of you out there, thanks so much for listening. And until the next episode, live above the noise. Hello, everyone. If you'd like to get our email update about new episodes, tips and tools, and all the latest information, please sign up for our Noise Watch update on our liveabovethenoise.com website.